The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you. So welcome, everyone. It's wonderful to see you here this evening. It's a, a busy time of year. What I want to talk to you about tonight is listening. And on the way, we're going to visit uh, some ideas of stillness and, and altruism. But it's basically about listening, because this is what's up for me. So I'm going to start by reading the end of a, a rather lengthy poem. And uh, the part I'm going to read to you, I think you'll, you'll see where it's headed. So... <clears throat> Every day when I pick up my four-year-old daughter from preschool, she climbs into her back booster seat and says, Mom, tell me your story. And almost every day I tell her, I dropped you off, I taught my class, I ate a tuna fish sandwich, wrote emails, returned phone calls, talked with students, and then I came to pick you up. And almost every day I think, my God, is that what I did? Yesterday, she climbed into the back seat and said, Mom, tell me your story. And I did what I always did. I said I dropped you off, taught my class, had lunch, returned emails, talked with students, and she said, No, Mom, tell me the whole thing. And I said, Okay. I feel a little sad. And she said, Tell me the whole thing, Mom. And I said, Okay. Elise died. Elise is dead, and the world feels weary and brokenhearted. And she said, tell me the whole thing, Mom. And I said, in the dream last night, I felt my life building up around me. And when I stepped forward and away from it and turned around, I saw a high and frozen crested wave. And she said, the whole thing, Mom. Then I thought of the other dream. I said, when a goose landed heavily on my head, But when I'd untangled it from my hair, I saw it wasn't a goose, but a winged serpent writhing up into the sky like a disappearing bee. And she said, tell me the whole story. And I said, Elise is dead, and all the frozen tears of mine, of course, and if that wave broke, it might wash my life clear, and I might begin again from now and from here. And I looked into the rearview mirror. She was looking sideways, out the window, to the right, where they say the unlived life is. Okay, I said. And she said, okay, still looking in the other direction. So what I would like about this is the insistence of the four-year-old that she tell the whole story. The whole story. There are kind of several ideas folded into that. One of them is that hearing the whole story, getting the whole story out, was really essential for the poem, poet, for her, to be able to actually say it out loud, was, was crucial. But she didn't volunteer to tell that story. She, would, she didn't start out thinking, I have to tell her about this great sadness in my life. She had to be encouraged. Somebody had to say, I'm listening. Keep going, I'm still listening. Keep going, I'm still listening. 
that act of saying, I'm here for that story. You know, we go, we go through life all the time telling somebody, you know, somebody comes up and says, how are you? You say, fine. Yeah, I'm great. I'm great. How often do we tell them what's really up for us? Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes the act of telling to someone who is listening allows us to say, oh, oh, that's what it's about. Oh, that's what's happening. Oh, I get it. Sometimes we don't know ourselves. So listening, uh, there's a touch of melancholy in that poem. It was about how the person was suffering. But also there was a certain lift in that story that had to do with, oh, it's possible to move on from here, and, and that's what I'm doing, I'm moving on from here. Oh, along with this sadness, this sadness is here, and, and something else is here also. So the act of speaking and hearing allows something to arise in the world that may not have been seen, felt, understood. It also underscores that tendency that we all have of perhaps not being transparent. Now, there are good reasons for that. All of us have things that are secrets, that are things that we think will be unacceptable to someone else, things that used to be true that are no longer true, that we don't want to be judged by, things we don't want to judge ourselves for. So some of that is also there. The the act of listening is also an act of reciprocal vulnerability. Reciprocal vulnerability. So some of what has been going on for me, I've been reading, first of all, I sat a a three-week retreat. And um, for those of you who have sat a long retreat, these can be quite profound. And the thing that happens that is most beautiful is the stillness that you reach, the stilling down, the quietening of the mind, the stillness that leaves a space for something else to arise. And the stillness that I experienced was so beautiful and so profound. My first thought was, everyone should experience this before they die. I mean, just everybody needs to understand how it feels to be this still. And the next thing arose, how can I bring this stillness into you know, what passes for everyday life, because that's where I live. I don't live on retreat. I live in the everyday life that we all share. So that's been on my mind. How how does stillness inform my life? How is, is it something that only arises when I'm off, you know, in seclusion somewhere? Or is there some way that this stillness, this gathering together, can be useful in the life that I'm living? The other thing is that I have been reading um, a number of books. So two of them in particular I want to mention tonight. One of them is In Search of Wisdom, A Monk, A Philosopher, and a Psychiatrist on What Matters Most. The, the lead author on there is this is Matthew Ricard. The other two people are Alexandra Jolien 
and Christophe André, and I apologize for my poor French pronunciation. All of these people appear to be French. And the other book is by uh, Matthew Ricard, and the name of it is Altruism. So the subject is so interesting to him, he wrote an entire book on it. So so to begin with, with the stillness part, it is this quieting of the mind. It, it, it's getting the mind to stop the endless flashes of story that have to do with everything that happens in our life. My fingers are going out to the ends of my hands and I'm flashing them in the air and this must mean something. And there's a whole lot of discussion going on in my brain about what is this, what does it mean, and I'm just exercising my fingers. So the the quieting of the mind is is the slowing down of having to explain everything that happens in our experience. There's an explaining that's happening and a planning that's happening and a wondering that's happening. And, and just seeing that and al- allowing it not to be all of our conscious awareness is an act of stilling. Oh, look at how busy all that is. For this microsecond, I'm going to drop it. It's back. Okay, fine. But for this microsecond, I'm going to notice a piece of stillness. A piece of stillness. There is a simplifying that happens on retreat. You know, I I get up in the morning. The first thing I do is I check my iPhone to see what time it is. And then I wonder if I've got any texts that require immediate attention. And the next the number of electronic devices in my life that I pay attention to within 15 minutes of getting up is frightening. Frightening. What is that all about? So a certain amount of busyness that can be deliberately set aside. What I'd like to convince you of is not the importance of not paying attention to electronic devices. I myself am totally addicted but the importance of noticing the moments of stillness. It's not an either-or. It's an also. Notice when, when it's simple. Notice a simplicity. Another item has to do with resting without an agenda. We are agenda-driven animals. We have agendas. We have plans. This is what I'm going to do when I get up. This is what I'm going to do next. Here's what happens. I remember having this unbelievable experience on retreat as I was walking down the the middle of the cafeteria, and I suddenly stopped and realized I didn't have a plan. There was no—I wasn't walking anywhere. I was just walking. I had nowhere to go. I had no plans what to do. I didn't— It didn't matter whether I turned around and walked the other direction. The only thing that mattered is I thought I probably shouldn't just continue standing there in the middle of the room because, you know, it might be upsetting to other people. But how unusual it was to not have an agenda. Wow. Causes me now to notice how often I'm on agenda, how often I have a plan, how often I have to Put something, line it up so that I know what's going to happen next. And the final thing had to do with sitting with kindness. 
One thing that happens when your mind slows down is that there seems to be a natural tendency toward kindness. Just not taking things quite so seriously and, and a little more open to what is happening in the experience. And this, this is actually a manifestation of kindness. There's, a, there's just a, oh, a kind of a leaning into a moment, an open moment, feels very kind and unthreatening not dangerous, safe. A moment of safeness. So what happens? You're not chattering. I'm not chattering to myself, to myself, about myself. I'm not chattering to others, justifying, explaining, underscoring, rationalizing, planning. All of that chatter has gone away. In fact, what happens is There's no chattering. And there's just a little silence. Silence. I remember when silence used to terrify me. Really, I was was afraid of silence. And now, oh, gee, it is really, it's a blessing. It's, It's magnificent to truly feel silence. No expectations. No damnations, no explanations, just that. So the natural thing then, as you leave retreat, is you want to extend all this glorious good feeling everywhere in your life. And so you start asking, how do I do that? So uh, in the book that I mentioned, uh, the uh, uh, In Search of Wisdom, the philosopher was uh, Alexander Jolien, and uh, he he spent 17 years in a, uh, a physically handicapped home, home for the physically handicapped. So he had a lot of time to think, I suppose. And he may have had a lot of silence also. So the, So he said something I found really interesting. He said, praying is plunging into silence totally, being mute and listening. Praying, being mute and listening. He refers to Meister Eckhart, who uh, was a 13th century theologian, and, and this man influenced him, and he said, Before him, my prayer consisted of a long series of requests. I was filling the void, Now I'm beginning to abandon the requests. This was the statement that's totally impressed me. Prayer comes from being available every moment, from the wakefulness in which you learn to say yes to whatever comes, without rejecting anything, without ever clinging. Prayer comes from being available every moment, from the wakefulness in which you learn to say yes to whatever comes. So he's saying that that prayer, what what he's his evocation of something that is sacred, is being aware in every moment.
What does this do? This stillness, this being awareness, has to do with creating the possibility for a little space between what's happening, what I think should be happening, what might be happening, all the busyness and the agitation and the fast-moving, just the possibility of space. To not have the answer. Space to not have to be right. Space to not have to plan. It's an allowance. It's a profound allowance. I'm suggesting that these moments of stillness can be true moments of freedom from having to be anything that you are not. Also freedom from having to be what you think you are. It's a moment of of possibility, being free of the delusion of view. This is what's true, this is who I am, this is what needs to happen. It's a moment of seeing clearly, without all of these constructs in front of you, all of these plans for how life needs to be, all of the agenda, any moment in which you are not controlled by that is a moment of freedom. I'm not saying that planning is unimportant. Planning is very important. Thinking is important. It's an also and. The space of a clear moment. Oh, it's like this now. Huh. When one experiences this freedom of stillness and ease, you want to extend it out into the world, and extending things out into the world inevitably involves other people. (laughs) We're sitting in this room. There are other people in this room. There are other people in our lives. Some of those people we love and admire. Some of those people, not so much. We come out of something like a retreat and we're hit immediately with the cynicism and the hopelessness of things that we wish were different than they are. The meanness of everyday life. Wham, it's right there in front of us. We see it all the time. What do I do about this? I can't deny this is true. How do we sustain stillness, the lack of agitation, Agitation. How do we encourage a lack of agitation? What do we do with difficult people? Not counting ourselves, of course. Perhaps this would be a good time to mention that this Dharma talk is especially about what I need to say to myself. So, There is, in fact, a natural tendency to want other people to be happy, too. There are lots of possible reasons for this. One might be that it's easier to be in a world where people are happy. You don't have to look at somebody's angry face or have somebody look at you threateningly or with great confusion. We see this tendency in ourselves for, for wanting other people to be happy 
by noticing that when we're angry, it feels bad in the body. The stomach churns and the jaw clenches. And when we're happy, everything seems kind of easy and light. We can feel these feelings in our body. And so it becomes pretty easy to see why we might want other people to be happy if it makes us happy. This is a form of uh, reciprocal altruism. <laughs> you, I make you happy, you make me happy, we're all happy, right? <clears throat> but it's also true that we experience joy when we see other people being happy. This is a, a kind of empathic response. When I notice people are happy, I get a lift from that. Oh, isn't that great? Or when somebody is really sad, I notice that too. There are all kinds of empathy, ways of looking at empathy. It's a common word used by people in many ways. But essentially it, has to, it is related to knowing what somebody else is experiencing. There's a cognitive empathy where we we know what they're experiencing. There's emotional empathy where we can experience what they're feeling and and we share that feeling. So there are different ways that empathy shows up. But basically, we have to be able to know how someone else feels in order to do something that that promotes their happiness, that encourages their happiness that encourages their joy. By the same token, we can go the other way, and we can say, okay, I know what pushes your buttons, and I'm right now not feeling good about you, and I'm going to push one of those buttons. And we can watch the way this happens. We can become aware of how our interactions with people affect this dynamic. I'm happy you're happy. Just like me, you want to be happy? Oh, now that's a different thought. Just like me, you want to be happy. Thomas Nagel is um, an American philosopher who has studied altruism. And he says, A willingness to act in consideration of the interests of the other person without the need of ulterior motive is altruism. So I'm defining it because I want to be clear about what it is I'm talking about here. So I'm going to read that again. Altruism is a willingness to act in consideration of the interests of the other person without the need of an ulterior motive. So that's saying, first of all, it's act in consideration of the interests. So I don't have to put your interests over me. I just have to act with consideration of your interests. So to do that, you have, there's a certain amount of empathy that's implied here that you, you can see, oh, this, this is something that is useful to this person that they like. This is, so this ability to, to extend out to the other person, notice the other person, be considerate of their interests. Then there's the part about without ulterior motive. So this is where altruism becomes something other than manipulation. So... If my motivation is to make you happy so you like me, well, that's one way of being in the world. But the likelihood of that having a great outcome uh, is maybe short-lived. 
because eventually we're going to run into a conflict of what I want is different than what you want. But if my ulterior motive is, is just kindness and understanding you, I don't have to grab you up and, and hold you to me. I just have to consider what your interests are. Just consider what your interests are. <clears throat> In their book on wisdom, Ricard, Julian, and Andre consider how to be kind in the face of unkindness and discouragement, because that's actually the trick, isn't it? And when they examined the role of altruism, they looked at the fear of naivete, being taken advantage of, you know, all those things that we worry about. And they paid particular attention to the act of listening attention to the act of listening. So, so Ricard said, listening is a gift one gives to the other party. It's a gift, listening. It's not only necessary to be patient with the other, but it is also necessary to be concerned for the speaker. The art of listening to another person is really showing up and allowing what they have to say to enter the room. To say, what you have to say is actually important to me. And I'm actually going to listen to it. Not just tolerate them, but listen. So I've had some experiences in the last couple of weeks where unexpected opportunities to listen arose. And uh, I, have, uh, I have a friend who has uh, developed a tendency to talk endlessly about things that are not very interesting. Really endlessly. And endlessly. And some more. And you want to say, you know... I really am not that interested in your dog's hygiene habits. You lost me after the first 20 minutes. I'm ready to move on. And I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm thinking, this is my friend. I should be able to just be here for her talking about whatever it is she's talking about. And I noticed all kinds of irritation. And finally I had to say to myself, you know, this isn't about what she's saying. This is about just showing up. I don't have to listen in the way of, I don't have to pay attention to what she has, what's so important to her. But I do have to listen to why she's saying what she's saying. Why is she occupying this space? What is it that's actually going on between us? so that I can hear what it is she's really saying besides the story. That's like that poem of the four-year-old girl saying, tell me the whole story. Or there was a, a, a man who was talking for quite a long time, telling stories about somebody that the other people in the group didn't know. They were stories I'd heard a lot. They were stories about kind of shady dealings and... So it was kind of untasteful, distasteful, not untasteful, distasteful. 
And he kept going and going. And, and finally I said, you know, that's probably enough. And then I realized the reason he was telling these stories is that that morning, this person he was telling the stories about had been taken to ER. And the guy who was telling the stories was the guy who called 911 and cleaned him up and got him ready to go out the door. And, and that what he was really experiencing was more of a shock that this man, who was 93 years old, may not be here much longer. And the telling of the stories had to do with working through this process of realization that this man is probably at the end of his life. Whenever that comes, it's not going to be too long. And the necessity to say out loud, this is who this person is, was just overwhelming for him. And my role was to hear it. Was actually to hear. This is a tribute to this man. I know you've heard these stories before, and you need to hear this. And that realization was, was important to me. That the, that the showing up, the listening part of this was more than the words. So that, that's one example. And also, sometimes we have a tendency to say, oh, I've heard all this already. I know what you're going to say. And we cut the story off. We, we cut, I'm guilty of this. Cut somebody short. Oh, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we, we talked about that. But the other person may actually need to say something. And we may actually hear something if we let them say it that we didn't know before. Hard to do. Hard to do, this listening. Just open-hearted listening. And this is what it takes. To hear someone, first you have to open your heart to them. And it's not so simple as saying, I want to be open-hearted. I'm just going to sit here. You, can, you spend all your time, instead of listening, you're arguing with yourself about how virtuous you are for listening. Okay, that's not working out so well. The showing up for somebody is actually hearing them. Sometimes it's the words they say. Sometimes it's the way they are. Sometimes it's the emotions they're expressing. <clears throat> my, uh, my sister's husband died uh, about 10 days ago. And I was talking to her, and she said, you have no idea how great it is to talk to somebody who doesn't want something from me. And I said, well, you have lots of people supporting you. She said, oh, no, no, they want me to be better. They want me to feel better. They want to have some influence on me. I'm on all the time. All I want to do is crawl into covers, under the covers. And I'm sitting here listening to this, thinking, oh, my God, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. That I, I was thinking that she had all this support, but what was true is that she felt like she was supporting them. And how, how fortunate I was to be able to be there long enough to hear her say, this is what I really want to say. 
you know, that we, we went on long enough that she could say what she really wanted to say. So in uh, uh, some of the reading I've done over the last year having to do with uh, tribalism and understanding why we can't talk to one another caused me to read uh, a lot of Jonathan Haidt. And he he has a theory of of, uh, uh, moral foundations for why people believe the things that they do. And one of the, the important ideas he espoused that I particularly like was the power of moral humility. This way of being with someone, with hearing people, is a way of of acknowledging that their moral foundations have value, as do mine. And that because we don't necessarily share those moral foundations, it does not make them bad people. You know, this morning I read an article about um, facial recognition technology. And the premise of the article was that this is a very dangerous technology. And it occurred to me that you could have two people, both of whom were very interested in security, who would look at this in an entirely different way. The people who are... uh, So it's being used by a lot of police departments to scan and recognize people, and apparently it's easier to recognize people with facial recognition technology than many other ways that you might be able to put people together. And so we're all being recorded all the time. So as a a privacy freak, I go, oh, no, they're recording me everywhere. On the other hand, so that this feels insecure... On the other hand, here's someone who's using facial technology on their phone, and now they don't have to put in passwords that people could see or or detect by some ways, and they feel much more secure with this. You have two people whose, whose interests are security with entirely different views about some technology. This sort of thing happens between us all the time. So that it's important to realize when we, have, when we are experiencing a difficult person, what we're really experiencing is a dissonance between the conditions of our mutual lives. The conditions of my life have to do with all of my beliefs and structures and experiences. And the conditions of your life have to do with all of your structures and experiences and the way you were born. And in any given moment, those conditions may clash. And the problem we have is that we personalize everything. We say, oh, that's you, or that's me. This is the way I am. Take it or leave it. And we don't allow for the fact that it's really a set of conditions. And that all of us have a tendency to hold to our own views. The way I see the world is certainly the right way to see the world. I'm a wise person. I've thought about this a lot, and I'm sure that I'm right. The ability to listen to another person and realize that they also believe they are right is the ability that arises out of saying, okay, I may be right, but it may not be the important thing to say at this point. 
because it may not be right for them. Uh, I was talking to some people who are having uh, marital difficulties because one has very right-wing concepts and the other is progressive. How they ever got married to each other is, you know, they, they got married before they ever asked themselves their political standings. So here they are. So in talking to them, I reminded them that they got married for a reason, that, there was, that they actually have a lot more in common than that political difference. Or they wouldn't have gotten to that point. But it becomes, in an election year, a very difficult thing to manage. <laughs> and listening to one another turned to be, out to be uh, painful, really painful and isolating and scary, frightening. Frightening. And no amount of saying, you know, this person, you, you know this person, this person is a quality person. So you're fighting over these concepts. But who are you as people? Now, I don't know what's going to happen with them, but it was very sobering for me to witness that pain and that uncertainty between one another and to see it arising out of things that didn't have to do with either one of their hearts. They are both really wonderful people. Really wonderful people. Part of what is necessary is to pause. Stop. Take that little moment of stillness and wait. Wait for whatever your first flush of response is to what someone says. Give it a chance to flush through the system and maybe the prefrontal cortex will, will kick in before the amygdala does, you know, the one that reacts to fear and anger and upset, the really fast-acting one. If you can slow the process down, there's time for the prefrontal cortex, which sort of handles... Um, Uh, taking care of impulsivity, which includes impulsive speech. (laughs) Then there's a little time for things to slow down and to to decide what's the proper response, what's the proper way to be with this person, what's the proper, uh, uh, what's the, the most skillful way of being in this conversation. Maybe I don't actually know what's bothering you. Maybe I don't actually know what you think. Maybe you're not like this black picture I have of someone. That, you know, who would, if you would say that, yeah, I know just who you are. Right? When what's really happening is somebody standing there saying, won't you hear me? Just hear me. You know, we have a tendency to um, to, be, to succumb to uh, two kinds of biases: uh, a, a confirmation bias, <clears throat> where we believe what we believe, and so we only see what we believe, and it confirms what we believe, and we don't notice anything else. That happens. 
or or the 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 case of attribution error where we we believe the worst about our enemies and the best about our friends we can kind of get stuck in that so somebody says something and you you hear it you're on that you're you're on the lookout for that kind of negative thing that's about to happen you hear it and it just proves everything you've always thought and it could have been innocent truly innocent or it could mean what you think it means but the process of waiting just a moment just a moment to consider whether that's true or not and under what conditions is it true means that you have a better chance of hearing what the person wants to say and they have a better chance of hearing you and they're more likely to stay in the room with you <laughs> which is useful <clears throat> Um, the other tendency is the one that has to do with, uh, well, it's, it's actually part of attribution error, but, but we, we believe that, that in our case, the problem, the reason I blew up is because of the conditions today. It, you know, it's, it's not who I am. It's just, you know, it's the way it was today. But you, on the other hand, have always had a quick temper, and so, you know, I know this about you. So this tendency to, to, uh, to explain our own failings or those of the people in our group can get in the way of actually hearing that this person is having a bad day. They're really tired. Or knowing that about yourself can be very key. Today, I'm really tired, so I'm not likely to be really good at this. Maybe this is a time when I say, you know, I'd really like to hear about your trip to the Bahamas, but, but I'm, I, I'm so tired that I'm going to miss half of what you say. I'd rather hear it tomorrow. Maybe I don't ever want to hear about the trip to Bahamas. But at least, if I'm going to listen to it, I want to listen to it with a willingness to be present, with a willingness to see the other person, to show up for the other person. An altruistic approach to hearing what it is they have to say. it can help us not misinterpret what other people say. You know, you're being totally unreasonable. Name-calling usually comes from something like this. And the next thing you know, we're taking it totally personally when it's really that they've got an upset stomach. There's a, there's a, a Buddha story where... Uh, he's being uh, interrogated by some local... Uh, itinerant person, and he's consistently insulting the Buddha over and over and over again. And the Buddha says, I have a question for you. If someone offers you a gift and you say, no, I don't want it, you can keep it, who owns the gift? And he said, well, I guess the person trying to give it away. He said, in the same way. I reject your insults. They belong to you. Now, I kind of like this because part of me likes the perfect squelch, you know? There's that, that little evil brain in me that likes that. Ha! That was clever. But actually, what I like about it is the realization that just because you call me an idiot doesn't make me one. That part of listening is listening very clearly for what is coming up and what our response to what is coming up 
can be. If we attribute everything someone says to being true, psychologically true, whether it's true or not, then we're participating in something that is detrimental to us. So listening doesn't mean we have to accept everything the other person says. We don't turn off the discernment switch. But we say, hmm, hmm, I wonder why that was said. I wonder what this person is experiencing. So it becomes a process of, I wonder what that person is experiencing, instead of being totally focused on what we're experiencing. It also means that we have to know what we are experiencing. It doesn't do to decide only the other person is important. We have to know both. When we meet with unpleasant character traits and behavior, we have to be able to say, you know, I don't like that. And if it's true for us, we have to be able to say, I don't like that. But we don't have to say, I don't like that person. I don't like anything about this. We don't have to start piling on a story in the midst of listening to this so that we're no longer listening. And there's, there's one other trick. The, the, uh, the psychiatrist talked a lot about how he dealt with uh, clients. And he said one of the things that he learned in listening to them was the importance of um, actually telling them that he heard them. And he said one of the ways I do that is to say, give me a few minutes now to absorb what you've told me to reflect on what you just told me before I respond. I really liked that. that. That act of saying, you know, I was listening to you, so I wasn't formulating my answer and my response and my, you know, what I'm going to do next, so I need to have a couple of minutes to think about this. I have to consider whether something you said has changed something that I believed. That establishing a space with the other person is also an important part of listening. The, the space where I say, okay, let me just think about this for a minute. Let me just think about that. So all of these are good things. I mean, it would be nice to be a really great listener, to have the presence of mind to be there for someone to be able to offer everyone uh, unconditional presence in response to their showing up. Uh, but short of sainthood, there are some ways that we can cultivate this capacity. One of them is meditation, that finding that place of stillness that we can become familiar with so that we can recognize it, that we can, we can become a, more aware of what's going on with us and in the, in the room so that there is an enhanced clarity of vision. That's the purpose of meditation. It's not just to become relaxed and peaceful. It's to be able to see clearly, oh, this is what's going on. Oh, this is what I'm noticing. Oh, this is this ability to see. It also allows us to develop a capacity for patience. You know, you have to have patience to sit on the cushion because it doesn't always go the way you want. <laughs> you, 
you begin to develop the capacity to just be with it as it is. That patience, that patience that we cultivate in meditation, is the same patience we need to be with someone, to just set aside what we think we need to say, to hear them, to show up for them, to set aside the need to have an explanation or advice or a retort. The patience of waiting, the patience of hearing, And above all, to develop the capacity for compassion for ourselves, our own selves. We are talking to ourselves all the time. And very often it's quite critical. Why did I do that? I should have done this. What happened with that? Oh, I should be here. Recognizing, oh, here I am. I'm criticizing myself. This is what's going on right now. (sighs) Deep breath, let it out. This, this capacity to be present for just how it is, just how it is, for other people, has to start with ourselves. The ability to say, ah. You know, when, when I woke up this morning, I was just overwhelmed with unease. Not scary, anxious unease, but just mm, a little sad. And I, to, to this moment, I don't know what it was, but I noticed it. I didn't have a reason for it or an explanation for it, but I realized I was feeling fragile. I guess fragile is a good word. I was feeling fragile. So for about the first 15 minutes that I was wandering around, I decided not to, to do anything. My, my husband wanted to go over an endless spreadsheet again, and <laughs> I just thought, not now, <laughs> not now. This, this only has the capacity to turn into bad news. So, so I excused myself and said, I'll be back in 15 minutes to talk about this with you. <laughs> because I was aware of my state of mind, which was fragile, agitated, not agitated so much as uh, sad, low, low energy. Not a good frame of mind to have whatever conversation he wanted to have about his spreadsheet. Not. So being aware of ourselves is an important part of being able to listen and be present for what's going on in the world. And finally, grant yourself the permission not to be compassionate. Sometimes you just aren't there. Sometimes you're just not there. Know that you're not there. I am just not able to generate compassion in this moment. Okay, so consistent with whatever intention you have, decide whether that's a good time to carry on a conversation with someone. Or maybe like what happened with me this morning, it was better to say another time for this. I'm really tired, whatever's going on, being aware of that so that you don't put unrealistic expectations on yourself for how you're supposed to behave in the world. Now I'm going to be the perfect listener from now on. Everybody's going to be so impressed with how, how, what a great listener I am, and they're all going to be happy. 
This is an unrealistic expectation. Mostly what I encourage you in is adopting a piece of stillness. Noticing stillness in your life. However brief it may be. It's cumulative. It's like counting pennies. Not very, not very wealthy, but it's cumulative. And you, become, you start noticing it. Pretty soon you notice the nickels. Next thing you know, you've got dollars of stillness. Because you're seeing it, you're noticing it, you know how to, you recognize it, you can cultivate it. The ability to just be. End of sentence. And what more wonderful gift could there be than to invite another person to become what they truly and profoundly are? We offer this first to ourselves to be truly and profoundly just who we are. And then we offer that to someone else. May you be truly and profoundly just who you are. Thank you. So... Anybody have any comments or aggravated responses? I have a good five minutes I can listen. (laughs) Okay, so let's do this two minutes. For one minute, I want you to just consider something that's happened to you today that you haven't told anyone. Doesn't matter how big, how small. Something, something that you haven't told anyone. Okay. Now I want you to think about all the judgments you had about this thing you haven't told anybody. It was good, it was bad, it was happy, it was sad, it was trivial, it was really important. All of those judgments, I want you to imagine them sitting in this ball right here in front of you. Think of it as a she ball, chi ball. It's just here. You can kind of. It's got some. It's got some shape, and you're you're just moving it together with your hands. This ball, and all of those judgments about that thing you haven't told anybody is right in there. And I want you to take that ball, and throw it over your shoulder. And whatever you haven't told anybody today, may you have an opportunity to tell someone. Thank you all. Good night.